Welcome to Sitarona. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia. And this is episode 18. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our current event, we'll be talking about Hen- Henry a former member of MS-13 gang who informed on his fellow members and is now facing deportation. And for our case, we'll be talking about Scott v. Harris, which was a case that decided whether a police car ramming into a suspect's car on the freeway violates the Fourth Amendment's prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. You'll be surprised at the answer. <laughs> or maybe not, if you've been <laughs> listening to our podcast regularly. <laughs> Before we start though, Yvette, I feel like we haven't chatted in a while. Literally, mm-hmm. this is my first time seeing you since before spring break. Mm-hmm. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling rejuvenated after having gone to Puebla to do Know Your Rights presentations related to asylum, to the Central American migrants that are traveling in a caravan together. Donald Trump tweeted about them recently, if people heard about it through that. And I guess also... Yeah, it was just a really moving experience, and it brought me a really needed shift in perspective because the first week back at Stanford, I feel like transitioning from working in the clinic full-time to classes again made me get trapped in the bullshit of Stanford's politics, and it was really nice to leave and have a shift in perspective. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. I was, I mean, I found out the way the whole world found out <laughs> you were going via our Instagram, <laughs> Um, but that was really cool. I'm glad you were able to make it happen. Um, yeah. I mean, you were just telling me you helped, like, like y'all helped, like, 200 people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. That's yeah. so important. Yeah. It was a really special experience, and I didn't tell very many people because I found out about it last minute and then only wanted to go. Stanford could pay for my flight because I don't really have extra cash like that to just, like, you know, spontaneously buy a ticket to Puebla, Mexico. Um, and then as soon as I found out that Stanford approved me, then I booked my ticket like that night Um, and left like three days later. Was that with an organization? Like, do we want to shout out the organization or is that like more informal or? It's every year Stanford Law has a public interest auction where. No, I meant the organization you worked with in Puebla. I was like, I mean, I guess we can. No, I don't, we don't have to shout out (laughs) Stanford's public interest. (laughs) Quote unquote. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I heard about this through um, Pueblo Sin Fronteras, which was the, they were the organizers that were coordinating the legal support aspect of the caravan, and then the migrants themselves were self-organized, and I think that was what refreshed me the most, was seeing like self-organization and autonomy being played out in these really dire circumstances, um, and I felt like people really were operating as a collective, and cared about one another in a way that I don't see, you know, in the U.S. where people have all, you know, a lot of the material needs that they want met. It was just really cool to see people who are facing death be so giving to other people. Wow, that sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been busy too, because this past weekend was Admit Weekend. Yeah, not super busy. It's, um, I've been working on papers more than anything, but talking to admits too and it, that's been nice like I've met some really some dope admits that I think would be a great addition to the community but there's yeah there's just some people I was actually really excited about but I don't know I feel like 
Admit Weekend is not what's on my mind. Like, I was just in Puerto Rico. Um, oh, yeah, Puerto Rico. Um, and it, it was cool to, like, have the information that we talked about in our second episode be so useful. Yeah. Because, like, I actually knew a lot about what was going on in Puerto Rico. And when people would mention things like Promesa and what was happening prior to Huracan Maria and everything, it was... It was nice to be able to engage in that, and I feel like they're so used to people not knowing anything about what's going on in Puerto yeah. Rico. So yeah, I I wanted to mention that because I just wanted to remind folks still so much need in Puerto Rico. Yeah, and there was some tourism back, and but mostly people stayed in San Juan, and San Juan, out of all the places on the island, is the most recovered. So people are coming back with the idea that it's reco- Puerto Rico is like doing all, all right, but. For the work that we were doing, we were actually driving through the mountains and into more remote regions. And there's still so much, so much destruction. So many things like down power lines that haven't been fixed. People who are still fighting their cases with FEMA. So many people are still doing that. And it's just, we can't forget. And we can't just keep waiting into the next hurricane to like then start giving attention and start caring again. There's so much. And also, Puerto Ricans like are very hopeful that the fact that a lot of people have centered on Florida is going to make United States people care about Puerto Rico more as a like a voting block and like speaking to the politicians mm-hmm. so that's something to keep an eye out on and like see how see how we can support the community that has relocated to Miami and in Florida generally and and help them get that political capital yeah I think it's important to not like, remember things based on the news cycle because yeah. there were so many stories coming out right after the hurricane hit and I don't really see many stories about it now but that, like you said that doesn't mean that there aren't still problems occurring and I just wanted to note that how dependent Puerto Rico's economy is on tourism things have gotten slightly better because tourism has gotten slightly better and I just think it's very sick that the U.S. has tied Puerto Rico's strings so much that their main export is tourism yeah no when I was I, go, I went a couple of days early so I could get to do some tourism and like see the historical places and do all of that. And I learned a lot about Puerto Rican history that I had no idea because they, it's just worth learning about. Like I'm not going to recap it now, but it's just, it's worth learning about because Puerto Rico has just been like a colony yeah. forever. Yeah. <laughs> and like if we name Boricua, like if people don't know why we call Puerto Ricans Boricuas, look that up. Like, they, they have a rich indigenous history that has, since the Spanish, has just been, like, glazed over. Yeah. Hopefully we can post some stuff for people to read in the episode notes. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the current event, um, do you, let's mention two more things. One, we have an event coming up. Right, yes. Yvette? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're really excited about this. We're going to do our first live recording of an episode. I'm so nervous. Okay, yeah, but you, you just can't think about the nerves. I know, but I'm just, no, I'm worried that, like, we're going to, like, the microphone's not going to work, uh, or it's going to be too loud. Like, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. It'll be perfect. But I'm, yeah. like, I get, I, like, blush when someone mentions this event. We should, I mean, we should definitely practice with the sound before, like, the day before. Yeah. We'll tell Matt about that. So, Roxanne Denbortiz is a very celebrated author. She wrote An Indigenous People's History of the United States, but most recently she wrote... Loaded, a disarming history of the Second Amendment, where she takes us through the white supremacist origins of the Second Amendment and how actually the Second Amendment was pivotal in allowing for settler, 
settler colonialism to actually happen because... Wait, what kind of colonialism? Settler colonialism. Oh, settler. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. No, it's fine. I just missed it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough word to say. I've only gotten through like half of the book yet um, so far, but I also want to ask about kind of what, what solutions she sees because on the other hand, I know that gun control has been used to like disarm radical groups like the Black Panthers in (laughs) Oakland. So I think that all these things are going to come up and it's going to be a really rich and interesting discussion. Um, It's not going to be like, you know, something where we espouse a certain agenda. We're just going to explore the problematic history of the Second Amendment and the problematic history of gun control and then see where we end up. This is going to be on April 27th. It's going to be from 12.45 to 2. And I I would say that the live stream is probably going to start at like 1.00. Um, so we're going to live stream it on Instagram. Um, please look out for that. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really nervous, but I'm also really excited. And I, yeah, if you're in the Bay area and you want to come, let us know yeah. if you don't know like where it is because the poster's mm-hmm. not clear, just like send us a DM and we'll mm-hmm. send you um, directions and whatnot. Yeah. Lunch will be provided. So do RSVP so we can get an accurate count. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And last thing, last, last thing before we get into our current event for this week, uh, we just wanted to give another shout out to Studio for the headphones. And if you, again, like if you're in the market for nice headphones that, you know, I don't even have the over ear noise canceling ones, but I, I just like put mine in the in earbuds and it's, I don't hear anybody else and like not very high volumes. So I think if you just want headphones that work and are comfortable i recommend it it's not it's not bad and then just use cerebronas at checkout perfect okay so now we're going to jump into our current event which is focused on the story of henry who is a teenager who was formerly involved in the ms-13 gang um but we want to back up right now before yeah before ms-13 do you want to get into what they are just because i feel like it's it's becoming a (laughs) quote-unquote household name but just to be clear what is ms-13 yeah um so ms-13 is a transnational gang that began in los angeles los angeles prisons um and you know just because of how racialized prisons are ms-13 became an entity and then the doj deported um these gang members to El Salvador where they kind of reconvened and became a really large, very organized criminal organization. Unfortunately, MS-13 for a lot of people has become synonymous with El Salvador, even though, yes, this entity is controlling many territories in the U.S. and, sorry, in El Salvador, and um, is also something that is above the government in a lot of ways um people are well, so that's why that's one of the theories were for why ms-13 was able to get so big so quickly in el salvador right was because yeah. the lack of the government presence and just how few resources the, yeah. the government has to give its communities and just is not present in so many areas yeah that's really, very sad yeah, yeah because Actually, this happened with Henry. The gangs would started buying his school uniforms, and that was kind of how they first came into contact with him. And that's how that was kind of their first leverage of being able to manipulate him. Because, like you said, it, it isn't the government that's providing resources to poor communities. It's like in many in many areas, it's just the gang that has like 
extra food, extra clothes. Um, people are in really dire situations. And that's not unpredictable. I feel like we, yeah, that's, that is a lot of ways on why gangs are able to like, not like be, be in communities and sometimes be protected by the communities and sometimes not, of course, but it's, it's a complicated relationship that, that they would have with people because they do provide things that the government and the society isn't. Yeah. But they're also very violent. Um, yeah. So Henry, <clears throat> who's Henry? He is a teenager and he was formerly involved in the MS-13 gang. And then he decided that he kind of wanted to leave MS-13 permanently. And so he cooperated with U.S. law enforcement and then informed on the gang to the FBI for like a year. Um, and then ICE placed him under deportation. And all, their whole case is based on information that they gained from Henry informing on the gang. Which I think is so sick. They're just... Like, they used this little kid, this little boy, and now they're going to feed him to the wolves, basically. Yeah, they just got what's useful from him, and now they don't feel like they have any more use. That He's not as necessary, so now whatever happens to them, they don't care yeah. all of a sudden. You know, it's an example of how Central American bodies are treated as disposable. So... And the reason why we're saying that he would, is going to be fed to the wolves is that because he's a public and known informant, MS-13 is aware of what he's done, and if he's going to be, if he were to be deported, it just would definitely mean death, and it's going to be a really grisly, scary death. Yeah, and I will post the links to the article and the video that really goes into depth into everything that happens. But there's there's so many ways that the the MS-13 knows because even before he started informing they were already suspicious that he like wanted to leave because he wasn't he wasn't participating he was trying to distance himself when possible and then he started informing and there's this thing called memos which is a really stupid thing that the government gives for, to detainees because it's such confidential information and uh because Henry can't show his to the people that he's detained with, it's it's like an even clearer sign that there's information in there that they he does that would incriminate him in the eyes of the gang. Yeah. And he spent eight months in detention with MS thirteen members threatening his life. So what do we know about him? Because he was first in El Salvador and then came here. Mm -hmm. So what do, what else do we know about him? So he grew up in El Salvador and when he was 11, an MS-13 member recruited him to the gang. And he just experienced a, a ton of trauma because of his involvement in MS-13. Um, part of his initiation was killing a blindfolded man. And, he, you know, he had to do that when he was 11 years old. That's I feel like that's trauma you can't really come back from. And yet, like, watching the video, like, this is, it's, it's incredible. It, like, yeah, I, I'm like, you can't come back from that. And I feel like so many people would be so incapacitated by an experience like that. And yet watching the video of him, he's, it, it just shows us how valuable lives are, even though we're treating them as not having any value. Because Henry is still a person who's so worth helping supporting and aiding even though he's experienced all this like I can't imagine yeah I know I I feel that way with a lot of asylum seekers that I come across I can't comprehend the levels of trauma that they've experienced a lot of times and they're still such resilient people yeah. and I think it, it does speak really to the beauty of humanity and being so resilient but 
I don't want to romanticize yeah. what, what's occurred in his life. No, of either. Not. So, like we were mentioning earlier, the gang came into contact with Henry because they would pay for his school uniforms. And then one night he received a phone call with someone saying that if he didn't leave the country in two days, he and his grandparents would be disappeared. And, and that was from a rival gang? Or? It's unclear. Yeah, it's unclear who that was. And Henry came, so Henry came to the U.S., but he had a difficult life here, too, because his mother had an abusive boyfriend, and their relationship was strained because in all of their years apart, she had never sent him a photo of herself, so when they first met, he didn't even know what she looked like. Mm -hmm. And one day, the abusive boyfriend threw hot oil at her head, and she was taken to the hospital for third-degree burns. Then his father helped him lie about his age so that he could get a factory job working 12 hours a day perforating toilet paper for $9 an hour. And then he gave almost all of that money to his mother for rent and groceries. So Henry's just had a, you know, he's had a very difficult life yeah. both in the Salvador and here. Yeah, and I was reading that afterwards, like, his mom left for a shelter, a domestic violence shelter, without saying, like, even saying bye. So it was, like, very sudden. Mm. And he was, like living with this uncle and then I was reading somewhere else that he's like actually having a second job too later wow. on and like he just was getting no sleep so yes like let's just really emphasize like this has been really difficult yeah and I really feel for Henry's mom too who yeah must have been put in such a terrible situation to feel that that was the appropriate thing yeah. to do you know she Probably There's felt so like she was many saving layers her life. here, and yeah. the FBI and all these government agencies <laughs> just act as if, like, like the language that we hear, right, just, like, criminal, immigrant. It's like, no, these are people that have such complex experiences. Yeah, yeah. So he's in the U.S., and he enrolled in Brentwood High School where he encountered members of the MS-13 gang. And I guess, I don't know what compelled him to do this, but one day... He just wrote out his whole story instead of doing a classroom assignment and turned it into his teacher. How um, then uh, the FBI investigation started, and I wanted to reiterate that the evidence that the FBI and DOJ has against him, they found out through his cooperation in their efforts to arrest MS-13 members, and they were successfully able to because of Henry's help. Well, even then, I was reading in the that the article you sent me that he. A lot of the people he informed on, who the government then tried to deport, like the evidence hasn't been sufficient for some of them. So some of them are out and Henry's not because the oh, evidence wow. against him is a lot stronger. Because he told his because story he to told them. Exactly. And so it's like this, it's it's just, it's just an additional layer of how frustrating this is. Mm -hmm. And it seemed honestly like from what I was reading and like from what he spoke about, that he was really trying to leave MS-13 and was trying to figure out how because he had made a promise to his grandfather about, like, using this as a new opportunity and, like, his grandfather passed away and that really, like, made him feel bad that he wasn't hadn't been able to, like, complete that promise. So, it's just, I just, I can't recommend enough, like, read the article. There's so much there. It's such, it's such a, such a rich um, retelling and I feel like it's a lot of his own words that are captured in there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to spend a bit of time talking about the how the government trial attorneys have been acting throughout the trial. They denied three experts from testifying, or they filed objections to three experts te testifying on behalf of Henry, and that included an FBI gang task force member, a gang, literally a gang expert, and also the superintendent of Henry's school district. 
They said that the expert wasn't qualified enough, that the task force member needed to be subpoenaed in a specific way because of its professional role, and that the superintendent's testimony was irrelevant, which is really strange because in asylum cases, you always have character witnesses. So it's hard to say how the superintendent's opinion of Henry would be irrelevant. Also, it's, it's, uh, it reminds, it disproves, like, it's like, why would the government be like, we don't want to hear from these witnesses? Like, I'm sorry, your mandate is to, like, seek the truth, right? Like, present the most complete stories and really be after justice. And this just shows that, like, that's not the case. Like, why would you be objecting to someone providing more information that will be informing? This, yeah. This, this is just... Yeah, I think, I think you have a point to make on this. That's just spot on. Mm -hmm. the, there's a difference between a prosecutor gaining justice and a prosecutor winning their case. Well, not, well no, it's not because it's not prosecutors, right? It's like... Uh, oh, I, mean, I see them as... Well, yeah, they're ICE trial attorneys. Yeah. Who I, I see as prosecutors. Yeah. Because no, they have discretion. Yeah. Like, it's... Yeah, no. But, so I feel like their mandate might be a little different, but even then, like aren't all people who like are attorneys on behalf of the government like they're it's a general statement mission statement for all of them to like put on their about us pages you know i don't know if i says that they're seeking the truth <laughs> it would just be funny if they did and so now what's happened in the case is that the judge has ruled for a continuance which means that the trial has it didn't end on the day you know it didn't end on the day that it was supposed to originally and um, this means that Henry's going to be sent back to jail where he is still receiving threats from MS-13 members. Unfortunately the ethical rules of the lawyering profession are on my mind because of my having recently studied for the MPRE and I'm taking this legal ethics course this quarter and there's ethical rules that say that you can't use procedural mechanisms to unduly delay or harass your opponent and I just feel like um, ICE's act, like ICE trial attorney actions, especially under the Trump administration, utilizes this tactic, and it's really frustrating to me that I had to memorize this so that I could pass a test to become a lawyer when it's not true. Yeah, I, the thing that bothers me about the new administration is like, I don't, and I don't think I'm not saying that I could never say that the Obama era immigration policy guidelines were good. You know, so he had things sketched out for prosecutorial discretion, which is even though you can legally put this person in deportation proceedings, you choose to not because of some mitigating reason. And under Trump, that's like not a thing anymore. Um, there was a judge in San Francisco that said that um, prosecutorial discretion is not a thing anymore. She literally just said that in her courtroom. And I just think it's it's unethical to play these games when what's at stake is someone someone's liberty being taken away because they're detained or somebody being deported to a country where they face serious harm. Yeah, and and, and when those when they are taking that into account, the life on the other side, they weigh it as more important, right? Like they they're just like, "No, they to the those that do think about that, it's still not enough." because they just buy into this narrative about who who lives whose lives matter more. Yeah. I think we can end there. Unless yeah. you wanted to say anything. No, let's end there. Okay, so Scott V. Harris. I find this case really hard to speak about 
and but I think it's important because I think it's such a, a bullshit holding from the Supreme Court and the way I've heard this case spoken about like in my classrooms reinforces how much people buy into this whole system in really disturbing ways so we'll get into that but Yvette like what time period are we talking about this case was decided in 2007 do you want to go over the facts yeah so after a police officer attempted to pull him over first, Victor Harris fled in his vehicle, which then started a high-speed car chase. The officer, Timothy Scott, in trying to stop the car chase, rammed his vehicle into Harris's vehicle. Harris then sued Scott for violating his Fourth Amendment rights for using excessive force. Well, so Harris ended up uh, a quadriplegic, and yeah. when Scott, the police officer who rammed his car, went over to this to the car, which had flipped and like went like up in the air before it went back down. He thought he thought Harris was dead. So that's like the that's that's that was the result of the excessive force. So it wasn't just like he tapped his car and like caused the car to like spin around or, or something. This was this resulted in, in Harris being uh, a quadriplegic and near nearly died. Yeah. So Scott claimed Scott the officer claimed qualified immunity because he was a government official acting in his official capacity. And I just wanted to pause to explain what qualified immunity is. It's a concept that judges created, slash interpreted, and made law. And it states that in order to successfully sue certain government officials, in this case a police officer, you have to prove not only whatever violation you're talking about, but also that it was clearly established at the time that the officer was violating your constitutional rights. Yeah, so basically, unless there's been like a Supreme Court case that has already decided those facts, or it's really, it's clearly established is difficult to meet. Like what's clearly established is... <laughs> Is sometimes what we would think is obvious might not be obvious because like, oh, the Supreme Court hasn't decided this, so it's not clearly established. And if folks listen to our episode on, forgot what episode it was, but when we talked about the lack of an indictment, we, we get into a bit on like what the jury instructions are, which kind of goes over the law. So you can go back to that one if you want a refresher too. Cool. So in this case, the court was answering two questions, whether a police officer who stops a high-speed chase by ramming a fleeing suspect's car violates the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable seizure. And then the second question was whether or not it was clearly established, as Cynthia was just talking about, in federal law that an officer violates the Fourth Amendment by using deadly force during a high-speed chase. And what did the court decide? They ruled 8-1 to one that the police officer's actions were reasonable under the circumstances, and the decision relied heavily on a videotape of the chase where... Um, Scalia said that the tape proved that it contradicted the plaintiff who had said that he was driving responsibly during the whole encounter. The court concluded that it was reasonable for an officer to act as Scott did in order to prevent death or harm to innocent bystanders, even if that meant that that would put Harris in risk of death himself. The court also focused on the fact that Harris initiated the encounter, quote-unquote. And I saw the video, and I felt like all that it demonstrated was that Harris was speeding. I think it's a stretch to say that it warranted the force that it did. And, um, yeah, just, just like you were saying, the officer's actions resulted in Harris having permanent injuries. 
So you said it was an eight to one decision. So that means one person dissented. And I want to note that it wasn't Ginsburg. <laughs> Ginsburg. Everyone's fave. Yeah. Ginsburg sided with the majority. So who did dissent and why did they dissent? Stevens dissented and uh, he, Steven dissented. And he said that the video wasn't as clear and dry as the majority was making it out to be. He would have wanted this to go to a jury trial so that the jury trial, so the jury could decide if the cop's actions were justified. Yeah, so I just wanted to spend some, t a little bit on the facts because Scalia, if you only read Scalia's opinion, it's such a, God, he's just so good at highlighting the facts that he wants to highlight and just putting all the other facts under the rug, right? So it, Scalia and the police, they focus, like they make it seem like it was a really dangerous situation by focusing on the fact that Scott, no, sorry, Harris was passing cars and running red lights and that the pavement was wet. But that is such an incomplete set of facts. So it was 1040 at night. This was in rural Georgia. So imagine streets at 1040 at night, almost 11 in rural Georgia. Like don't imagine Los Angeles. Don't imagine San Francisco. Don't imagine Las Vegas, like rural Georgia, 11 p.m. at night. Okay. The roads were fairly empty and the police were closing streets off during the pursuit. So if you watch the video, you can see there's police on the other side and police behind him and, and cars are moving to the side because they can hear all the sirens for the, for the cars that are on the street. Mm -hmm. And they're, they do reach high speeds, but, but it's not, again, there's, it's late at night. There's like people walking the streets. Well, it's also, does speeding mean that you should be at risk of becoming a paraplegic, no, right? Like, exactly. even if he was speeding, I think that the outcome is still outrageous. Well, but yeah, but the, the court was deciding whether his use of force was reasonable for what, like the circumstance they were in, which was the high speed chase, but they completely ignore the fact that the police created the high speed chase. Like if, if they stopped chasing there would no not be a high speed chase, so they're completely ignoring that fact. And it's there's like Scalia reframed that fact by saying that Harris started the encounter. And that's not that's okay. So we I want to mention this because I think it's important. So there's a video, and it's it's hard to watch, but it's with Harris and Scott, and they both kind of explain what what happened the night, and I'll post the link to it. And so Scott talks about the police officer. He made a lot of assumptions. Scott wasn't the police officer who originally tried to pull Harris over for to give him the speeding ticket. So he joined later on. And he did know that the speeding chase had started as a result of speeding. Going wow. 70 miles per hour in like a 55 zone is wow. what they were pulling him over for. But Harris in his... No, yeah, Scott. Scott, sorry. Scott in the his mind, officer. the police officer was just like, there's no way this man is speeding just because he was speeding. He must have done something else. And so Scott convinced himself of that and was like making these assumptions. And, and so he like was part of his decision making into why he could do a risky maneuver. And, and that's just, the court just doesn't get into that. Doesn't acknowledge that at all. Like this man, he didn't, he wasn't a part of it. He thought there was something else when there wasn't. So already like it should not be reasonable because the assumption that Scott made was not reasonable and not reflected in reality. Mm -hmm. And so, and I said this video is hard to watch because it was filmed years later, but Scott still thinks he made the right choice. 
that he protected the public by making that choice. Whatever lets you sleep at night, I guess. <sighs> but there's more to say, but let's just quickly get into the qualified immunity doctrine because I think it's important. Yeah, so I just wanted to explain some of the reasons people give for qualified immunity being a thing, and one of them is that it allows for a good faith defense, which uh, people claim, defenders of qualified immunity claim is something that originated in common law uh, and also provides a fair warning to government officials. But the issue with this is that there never was a good faith defense that existed at common law. Um, and I think that we should question why we shield government officials so much um, from being held accountable. I know, and it's such... Uh, this is... I think this issue would be mitigated if we accepted international law a little bit more into our legal system, maybe not fully, but this is such bullshit. Like, you should... Like, the government has so much power. How are we not allowed to hold it accountable? That doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I want to talk about a few things because I want to... So on the, we covered this case in civil procedure my first, my first quarter here at Stanford. And the day we discussed it, I ended up walking out of the class because one of my classmates made the comment that what did we expect the police officer to do? Like, did we want, like, did we want people to know that if they just sped off, they would not be pulled over and that of course we didn't want that because then that would mean people were speeding would it speed and i'm just like how can you why is your desire to not want people to speed worth a man being harmed this way oh in case i don't think we mentioned it but this is a black man like yeah. harris was a black man so this again is just fitting very neatly into how this country does not value black lives and i just like i couldn't i couldn't stand that class anymore after he said that because i thought that was such bullshit like it, people speed all the time like people are going to speed all the time you do not engage in a a very dangerous high-speed pursuit just so that people don't speed like that those things aren't equivalent and so if you watch the why i videos called why i ran for for Harris on like why he why he did this and he explains that his license was suspended he didn't want to go to jail and he was scared it was late at night he was a black man being pulled over by police in rural Georgia and so he panicked and he drove off because he was desperate to get away and that all is very rational behavior yeah it's it's just troubling how so many people, so many of my classmates sitting mm -hmm. right there were just like, well, why would you run if you had nothing to hide kind of thing? Oh, wow. And it's just, yeah, it's just so frustrating because it just shows how disconnected the people who like are going to run this world are from reality and day-to-day -day experiences. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that comment that your classmate made uh, demonstrates how lost, many law students have authoritarian, authoritarian impulses. They feel like they know how people should act in a society and how to keep it orderly. And if someone deviates from that, they think it's appropriate to put people in jail. Yeah. Or, or hit or, their car. Yeah. Or run them over. Yeah. So <laughs> I just... Uh, it's terrifying. So I will post in our website if you want to watch it. It's, it's hard to watch. It's just very sad. Um, and it's... Yeah. I'll just post it. And if you want to watch it, that's a... You're, personal choice. Anything else you want to add to Scott v. Harris? No. Okay, let's end there. Okay, so 
for my recommendation this week, I wanted to recommend a Portuguese film. It's called Yaho Porque Preciso Volto Porque Te Amo. It's this really cool film that's made out of the discarded images and shots that the producers had from other movies. And um, it just shows the narrator going through various landscapes of Brazil. And there's some story arc to it, but I don't want to give it away. Um, I think it's a really beautiful film because the landscapes are really beautiful. And also it's just really interesting to me that the whole thing is comprised of shots and images that they threw away from their other projects. Where did, uh, where did you watch it or, or why did you watch it? How did you come across it? I'm taking a Latin American film class, so I'm a shift for class. Oh my God, that's so awesome. <laughs> that you're always in the best classes. <laughs> Okay, so my recommendation... Oh, I also wanted to mention, Yvette and I are trying out this whole only doing two segments per episode just because we've heard our episodes can get fairly long and so we want to keep them a little bit more accessible um, in terms of just like time. So we're going to try to just alternate what two segments we do and so that's why we we only did a current event and a case this time. So my... But feel free to give us feedback if you like the longer episodes. Yeah, if you miss having all three segments, let us know. So my recommend recommendation, and I feel like it's probably already really popular, is Queer Eye, which I started watching on Netflix. So a friend of mine told me about it, and I was, I, it sounded interesting when I when she told me about it. But I was, I was having a hard day and wanted to watch something light, and so I decided to watch it. And oh my god, I swear to god, I was crying from like <laughs> feelings of warmth in my Aww. stomach, which is like I have not cried from like feeling good in such a long time. Oh, and <laughs> it was it was just wild. Like there were so many things in that that I literally like want to find them and be like, please be my friends. Like mm. I need this kind of squad. Mm. Like I love my squad now. They are just constant affirmations, constant Aww. like like the, they're the types where you're you're you talk and they're listening and they're watching you and they're and not only are they listening to what you say but they're listen they're they're listening to what your body says and what your body language says and so of course like there's things that are problematic and it's like a very popular yeah. like just feel good show and, and that's okay and we can discuss that some other time but I just really wanted to recommend it because I do think it's a beautiful makes you feel good show so yeah. I, it's on Netflix and I highly recommend it. And the last recommendation that we wanted to make was for studio headphones. Cynthia and I both have them. We like them. We think that they do a decent job of noise canceling and they're cute. So if this appeals to you, then you should go and buy yourself a pair and use the Nebronas at checkout for a 15% off discount. And my cable and my ear- and earbuds don't get tangled. I've tested this. I've left them at the bottom of my bag so wow. many times, and they always come out untangled. I don't know what's the science behind it, but there's science. There you go. It's a glowing review. Okay, and just to sign off, we wanted to encourage you all, if you're a new listener, new listeners, to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's all at Cerebronas. You can donate to our Patreon, which there's a link on our website too, or you can just Venmo us at Cerebronas as well. And please leave an iTunes review. We've recently gotten some more iTunes reviews and nice. Yes, please leave us iTunes reviews. Like literally, I check every couple of days if we have any new ones. Don't disappoint, Cynthia. Leave us a review. Um, I just want to shout out the person who gave us our last review, whose username is... Oh my gosh, we got a new one. Ah! 
Oh, see, I'm going to read this new person's. <laughs> Wait, oh my God, this is weird though. Their username is someoneawesome1492. <laughs> I don't, that's weird. I, don't I mean, that's the kind of positivity I need to incorporate <laughs> into my thinking. Okay, well, but it's weird that they chose, chose 1492. But the, the title... Oh, yeah. Oh, ugh. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, Dang. I just realized what that... Those were just numbers to me for no. a minute. Okay, but they like our podcast. They said we're the smartest podcast around. Do yourself a favor and get smarter by listening to these two smart law students. You won't be disappointed. I learn something new every time I listen. That's so nice to see someone not hung up on whether we say ums and thinking that impacts our quality. Yeah, there you go. So if you agree with that person, then also leave us a review. Okay, well, Yvette... It was lovely to see you, Mm -hmm. and welcome back. Yay! (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.